For years now, a constant of bedtime with Riley has been reading, and not just any old reading, reading a few pages of Calvin and Hobbes. I'm not sure why he first took such a liking to it. The tradition began way before he could even begin to understand half of what was going on in any given strip, but since Calvin and Hobbes was by far my favorite comic strip growing up, back when, you know, you'd get a newspaper delivered to your house that had comics pages in it, I have happily gone along with it. We have this giant three-volume complete set, and we've made our way through it all, and then started over again at the beginning, I don't know, five times at this point? Six, maybe? Meredith, about a decade ago, was toying with the idea of having a sermon series based on Calvin and Hobbes comic strips, and there are still little post-it note thingies that she used to mark strips in volume one. I tell you all this because I am going to rip off Meredith's idea and start today with a Sunday strip from March 20th, 1994, so almost 30 years ago now, and like much of Bill Watterson's work, it really could have been written today. Um, It shows Calvin's parents and the kitchen table, and the mom says, any good mail today? The dad is holding the mail and says, hmm, not really. Here's a, you're not covering the cost of all these mailings charity request. You got a, you're not attractive enough women's magazine with an article on swimsuits that minimize all your body flaws. Here are some, you're not stylish or ostentatious enough catalogs, and coincidentally, an invitation to go deeper in debt from a credit card company. And here's our news magazine to identify the trend of the week we're missing. And I got a hobby magazine featuring new equipment I ought to have. Yikes. Why do I get the feeling that society is trying to make us discontented with everything we do and insecure about who we are? And then the mom responds, I suppose if people thought about real issues and needs instead of manufactured desires, the economy would collapse and we'd have total anarchy. And then in the final panel, the dad says, So pitching this junk would make me some kind of terrorist, huh? And the mom replies, yep, it's our patriotic duty to buy distractions from a simple life. And then Calvin shows up and says, hey, mom, I saw a bunch of products on TV that I didn't know existed, but I desperately need. We have talked quite a bit about idolatry over the past year or so, and how our idols are the things we would use to complete the sentence, whatever happens, it'll all be okay because blank. But we've often talked about this in a more individual sort of way, a personal way. How would I complete that sentence? And where I want to start today is the suggestion that there are also ways that whole cultures and societies complete that sentence. There are cultural idols, collective idols, national ways of completing the sentence, it'll all be okay because... Calvin's dad realizes that opting out of the collective idol of consumerism makes him something of a terrorist (laughs) because one of the ways our culture completes that sentence is by saying, because the economy is strong and our country is getting richer, so it'll be okay. And the thing about collective idols is that we're all expected to join in in worshiping them because if they are what makes sure that we're all going to be okay, well, then anyone who opts out puts us all in jeopardy of not being okay. If we actually stopped buying stuff we didn't need, as Calvin's mom says, the economy would collapse and there would be total anarchy. Our gods wouldn't be able to save us anymore. Whatever happens, it'll all be okay because the U.S. military is the strongest fighting force the world has ever seen. In other words, if anyone or anything threatens to make us not okay, we'll just bomb the hell out of them and things will be right again. Meredith and I have been part of churches where members have gotten, 
I think pissed would be the appropriate word, that we didn't take a sufficient amount of time away from worshiping Jesus to properly honor our military on the high festivals dedicated to the god militarism. Which highlights again an important point. Opting out of the cultural idols puts you at odds with the culture, inevitably. Not coincidentally, the Roman military at the time of Jesus was also an idol in this sense. The bringer of what they called the Pax Romana, the peace on earth brought by Rome and her military. Because anytime peace was threatened throughout the known world, Rome's armies would arrive to restore peace again through conquest. And if you questioned this definition of peace, if it sounded a little bit like war to you, well, we've got a cross with your name on it. When the angels proclaim that the baby Jesus is going to bring peace on earth, that isn't a politically neutral statement. It is foreshadowing a clash with Rome that is to come. The New Testament was written by a community that was opting out of the cultural idols of the day, for which they were labeled antisocial, atheists, threatening the well-being of the empire by not bowing before their gods. Questioning the cultural idols casts you out of the cultural mainstream. It makes you a troublemaker, a disturber of the peace. It can get you killed. And this is something that is hard to see when you are part of the cultural mainstream. When the idols are so pervasive, so much a part of the normal environment in which you live your day-to-day life, they might not even notice that they're there. But the Bible wasn't written by those in the cultural mainstream. It was written by those on the outside. It was written by those who are constantly calling the people of God to turn away from the idols assumed by the cultures in which they found themselves and to put their trust instead in Yahweh, in Jesus. When we're part of the cultural mainstream, we don't always see the ways that the Bible is calling us to make that same choice today, to turn from the idols assumed by our culture no matter the consequences, and turn to Yahweh, who is the source of life. As most of you know, we are in a series called Following Their Lead, How Black Theologians Help Us Read the Bible Better. Last week in this one, we are focusing on the book of John. And as I was reading Brian Blunt, Meredith and I uh, have a disagreement on how the pronunciation of his name. Meredith thinks it's pronounced Blount. I say it's Blunt. <laughs> but since I'm the one preaching this week, I'm going to call him Brian Blunt. But as I was reading his chapter in the, on the book of John, I was struck by how he interpreted one particular passage, not because it was completely different from anything I'd ever heard before, but because it uh, picked up on nuances and emphases differently than I had heard before. And I think one reason for that is what I was saying just now. Black theologians reading from a subculture that has been historically marginalized are better placed in some important ways to pick on the pick up on the nuances and emphases of a book that was written from a subculture that had been historically marginalized. This book, the Bible, it may have been co-opted by empire in the years since it was written, but it was written by those who were oppressed by empire. And that's an important divide for us, as Americans especially, to recognize when we try to apply it to our lives. A good starting point is to listen to those who have experienced being oppressed by empire themselves, because they might see things that those of us who have not won't. Blunt writes several pages about Jesus's conversation with Pontius Pilate, the Roman official with authority over Jerusalem and the surrounding areas during Jesus's trial and crucifixion. What I'm going to read is from John chapter 18 and starting in verse 33. 
Then Pilate entered the headquarters again, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you ask this on your own, or did others tell you about me? Pilate replied, I am not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priests have handed you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. Pilate asked him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this I was born, and for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. Pilate asked him, What is truth? Those in the cultural mainstream, whose kingdoms are very much of this world, have read these words from Jesus with a big sigh of relief. Jesus' kingdom isn't of this world. Good, he won't be threatening my kingdom then. Jesus' kingdom is a spiritual one in heaven. Mine is a physical one here on earth. No conflict. Two separate spheres of authority. But Blunt reads these words in a very different way, a way that, frankly, better aligns with all the many ways Jesus has shown throughout his ministry that he very much places demands upon the kingdoms of this world. Blunt says Jesus's kingdom is not of this world in the sense that it is not animated by and achieved by and protected by the same things that other kingdoms are. Jesus isn't saying my kingdom is somewhere else, so do what you want. I don't have any claim here. He is saying, my kingdom is not going to come through the same means, being subject to the same idols as these kingdoms are. Look again at what Jesus says after, my kingdom is not of this world. He says, if my kingdom were of this world, my followers would be fighting. He is talking about the method of bringing in the kingdom, militaristic power, the one that's assumed in the culture of his day and ours, by the way, my kingdom isn't based on that idol. Jesus is saying it will come in different ways. My kingdom is here, but it's not going to be brought about by violence and power. Pilate doesn't seem to totally get all this. I mean, all the other pretender kings always use the same idols of power and violence to try to bring their kingdoms. It's like how today some of the groups who want to protest the violence and silencing and injustice of the powerful do it by trying to build up enough power themselves to silence the voices they don't like. And actually what they're doing is just perpetuating the same idols playing by the same rules. But Pilate is like, wait, so you are a king then? Are you a threat to my power or not? Is what he actually wants to know. And Jesus's answer, he never really comes right out and answers the question clearly. His answer is yes and no. It depends on what you mean. I am a threat to your power, but not in the way you would think if I just came right out and said it. My kingdom is an alternative to yours, but it rejects the idols that yours assumes. It's based on different foundations, so it will be achieved in different ways. If Jesus just said, yes, I am a king, Pilate would assume that he therefore is a military threat to Rome. And so Jesus doesn't just say, yes, I am a king. He answers in a slightly different way. And the way that Jesus's kingdom will come is when a group of people together decide to reject the idols of their culture and to put their trust in Jesus, in Yahweh, in this different kingdom that isn't of this world because it rejects the idols of this world. But when people reject the idols, they get rejected by the culture as antisocial hostile even. And this is exactly what happens to the first Christians. 
They are rejected by the Jewish synagogue because they are proclaiming this Jesus to be God. And they're also persecuted by Roman society, not because they believe in this new God, Jesus, but because they don't worship the idols of Rome. The Romans didn't much care who you worshiped so long as you also bowed before the empire. And if you didn't, then you would be cut off. This tension is why the question of food sacrificed to idols comes up so often in the New Testament. If you've read much of the New Testament, you might have seen this discussed, especially in the letters of Paul. Social life in ancient Rome was all tied up with economic life, was all tied up with religious life. Your network of connections is what established your status in the society, and that determined your economic opportunities. And a normal part of social life was dinner parties, where the main course was meat that had been dedicated to one god or another. The different craftspeople and artisans had different guilds, which is where economic opportunity would come from if you had a trade of some sort. And those guilds had their own patron gods and goddesses whose worship was a key part of guild activities. It'd be like if an evening at the Union Hall regularly included pagan sacrifices on the side. And if you didn't join in, you weren't going to get a contract. Because choosing to opt out of those meant potentially losing your social and economic ties completely, leaving you adrift in the society. And so what is the church to do then in the face of those realities? Here we circle back to Meredith's message from last week. The church is to love one another. This was not a warm, fuzzy feeling, not really. It was the tangible action of building a foundation from which the members of the community could continue to resist the idols of their culture and live a life of trust in Jesus instead. The one another's that you might have read in the New Testament, they are not nice things for people to do because it's nice to be nice and it's good to be good and we want to be nice people. They are crucial alternative community building practices that give Christians the ability to go on resisting the idols of their culture. You can't reject those idols with all the consequences that such a decision would have without a community behind you that loves one another that bears each other's burdens, that lives at peace with one another, that prays for one another, and all the rest. And that is just as much true today as it was then, although especially when we're part of the dominant culture, it's it's just as hard to see. That's why we at Pomona Valley Church want to be a church that does the one another's, that lives out these community-building practices that can be the foundation of our following Jesus into the world together. Because if we do that, We believe we'll be the sort of community that can go on resisting the idols of our culture together and that can bear witness to the potential for a different place to put trust in a God who brings life. Amen.